We are in week two of a sermon series that's called The Grace and Truth Tension. This series comes straight from the heart of our Lord Jesus himself because the Bible tells us that he was full of both grace and truth. Not grace or truth, grace and truth. John 1.14 puts it this way, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came down from heaven, he moved right into our neighborhood, and he was full of grace and truth. You see, before Jesus, we had the law, which is all about truth. I mean, the law shows us how God wants his people to live, but none of us can measure up to God's standard. We're sinners. We fall short of God's glory. God is holy, and we are not. And so sin leads to death. And since we can't solve this sin problem on our own, that means we have a big problem. But God had a plan, and God's plan has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. Jesus left heaven, came down to earth, he lived the perfect life, and he died on the cross for our sins. We owed the debt, but he paid the price, and that's called grace, a gift that I could never earn. Praise the Lord. That's why it says that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. You see, he didn't come to abolish the law. No, he came to fulfill the law. He came to live it out perfectly. That's truth. But he also didn't give us what we deserve, and that's grace. Jesus came from the Father, full of both grace and truth. Now, we call this series the Grace and Truth Tension, because while Jesus is full of both grace and truth, we often struggle to do that same thing, don't we? We like the verses about truth when we're telling other people what to do, but we like the verses about grace when we're talking about us. And that sounds nice to just focus on grace, but it leads to bad results. You see, the heart of the message last Sunday was that truth without grace is mean, and grace without truth is meaningless. Now, None of us want to hear all the true things about us all the time. That would hurt, wouldn't it? I mean, we like to hear a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of flattery now and then. Hearing about our strengths is kind, the kind of truth that we like to hear. But on the flip side of the coin, it could be hard to hear those true things about us that we don't like too much or that we wish really weren't true about us. 
Now this week we're going to focus on grace. I picked a good week, or I got assigned a good week, right? Because grace sounds good, doesn't it? We all like grace. But as you might imagine, that means next week we're going to focus on truth. Now I got to tell you, that doesn't give you a free pass to stay home next week. Because if you stay home next week, then every single one of us is going to know, like in the famous line from Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, that you can't handle the truth. And you don't want to be that person. You see, we've got to have both grace and truth. Grace is a wonderful thing. In fact, the word grace is used over 170 times in the New Testament. Because we're all about grace. It's a broad word with lots of different meanings, but often the Bible uses it to refer to God's free gift of salvation given to us in Jesus Christ. It's a gift that is totally, totally undeserved. The classic acronym is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Which means that we get the blessings of a relationship with God and eternal life only because Jesus paid the price for our sins. Now we experience God's grace in lots of different ways and God's forgiveness is one of the best ways that we experience it. You see, when we sin, we aren't just hurting ourselves We're hurting other people, and most of all, we're hurting God. For you see, God created us. He, in fact, empowered us through the Holy Spirit to live lives of holiness. So when we sin, we're sinning against God first. And so in God's grace, he forgives us because Jesus paid the price for our sins. And so we should be gracious in forgiving other people's as well. And that's a tough thing to do, though. Because let's be honest, other people are difficult sometimes, aren't they? I'm not talking about any of you. (laughs) But other people, they can be hard. Peter was wrestling with this problem one day, and he wanted to know how many times to forgive someone who sins against you. It's a fair question. Now, the Jewish teachers in Jesus' day said that the number was three. Three times. So, if somebody steps on your toe and apologizes, you forgive them. Everybody messes up. We get it wrong sometimes. If they do it again, a second time, they step on your toe. Oh, this is getting a little bit old. You might not like it, but you forgive them again. Now, let's suppose they come and step on your toe a third time. Most people are going to be fed up by then. They're done with forgiveness. But the Jews were a people of faith. They lived up to a higher standard. And so they said to forgive three times. And after that, you didn't have to forgive anymore. That was the standard. Now, Peter had been traveling around with Jesus long enough to know that Jesus didn't settle 
for the normal standards. Jesus was always going around raising the bar. You know, you have heard it said, but I say that kind of a thing. Raising the bar. And so Peter decides he's going to try and get ahead of the game, get ahead of Jesus, as if that's even possible. I'm reading from Matthew 18. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, seven is the perfect number. You know, it it just carries this image of being the perfect number. It's twice plus one what the rabbi said you had to forgive someone. So Peter is going way above and beyond. He's the classic overachiever. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. I can imagine Peter thinking, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. I mean, I was more than doubling the standard of the religious authorities. But 77 times? I mean, I'm not even going to have a foot left if I let someone step on my toe 77 times. And to make matters worse, some of the ancient manuscripts of Matthew's gospel report that Jesus said 70 times 7. 490 times. Now, some people might say that's not even grace anymore. That's just stupid, right? Jesus is using hyperbole here. What he's really saying is that we have to keep on forgiving an infinite number of times, that we're not even to keep score at all. And so you might be sitting there asking yourself, Why on earth would I ever show anyone that kind of grace or forgiveness? Well, Jesus is glad you asked that question this morning, because here's his reply, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Sidebar for a minute. We often read stories like this, don't we, in Scripture where money or units of measurement are measured and we gloss over them, don't we, without really having an idea of, of how much of something is being talked about. I mean, in that classic line, what's a cubit, right? Well, a talent is not like playing the piano well or or shooting hoops with great skill. A talent, as being talked about here, is a measure of money. And one talent is worth about a million dollars in today's U.S. currency. So this man owes the king 10,000 talents. Do a little bit of quick math. That's 10 billion, with a B, dollars. I don't know about you, but I would have some trouble coming up with that kind of money. (laughs) I begin to wonder, how did this guy even rack up that much debt against the king? Jesus tells us that this man is one of the king's servants. Now, even if he was one of the king's most highly trusted servants with a lot of responsibility, and let's just say that his salary was at the national average for his day, and if we're going to compare it to the U.S. national average of our day, which is around $76,000 per year, that would take 
131,579 years to earn enough money to repay this debt. And that's without buying anything else for that period of time, just repaying the debt. I mean, let's face it, this is never going to happen, right? He can't repay that debt. And to make matters worse, back in biblical times, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. And so this whole man's life is just ruined by this debt. Verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, you probably know that throughout a lot of the history of the world, including in Jesus' day, serious consequences awaited people who couldn't repay their debts. A lender who had lent money to a borrower who couldn't repay their debt could force him and his family to work until the debt had been repaid. Or the debtor could, throw, could be thrown into prison, or his family could be sold into slavery to repay the debt. And all of, this, all of these kinds of things were meant to be a deterrent to keep people from getting into too much debt. And so, as we can see, the king's servant has pretty much ruined his life. He's ruined his family's life as well. He's acted so irresponsibly. He's run out of options. And so he tried the only good option that he had left, verse 26. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. Okay, wait. We have already seen how much this guy owes the king. There's no way he can repay it. There's no way the king is going to fall for it. This servant would need more than 1,700 life times working every day to pay this back. This is a joke. And just when you think this parable can't get any more ridiculous, verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What? That's crazy. It's preposterous. This is the biggest act of financial forgiveness in the history of humanity. The servant has just received the most incredible gift of grace. Clearly, he didn't earn it. Clearly, he doesn't deserve it. It's impossible. I mean, a rich man couldn't even have serviced the interest on that loan, and yet the whole loan is forgiven in an instant. Think about it. If you were this man, what would your reaction be if you were that servant? You'd be so happy. You'd be giddy. You'd be skipping and jumping. You'd be ready to celebrate all over the place. But stay tuned, because there's more. Here's what the servant did. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
Okay, another sidebar. This is a significant debt. A denarii is about one day's worth of wages. So it's 100 days' wages for an average worker. And if we use the same math that we used before, the second guy owes the first guy about $29,000. Not chump change by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly not $10 billion either. And so you might think that the first guy would be so happy over the debt that he'd been forgiven that he'd be walking on cloud nine. He'd be in a forgiving mood. He'd be ready to forgive anything. And you would be wrong. Continuing in verse 28, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. Now, as you can imagine, it's pretty hard to repay a debt when you are languishing in prison. I mean, if he was lucky, maybe he could sell off one of his family members into slavery to help repay the debt. But the parable isn't over quite yet. And as you might imagine, things are about to go from bad to worse. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went out and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. I kind of hate to admit it, but I sort of like this part of the parable. I mean, it feels right, doesn't it? I mean, you can't feel sorry for this guy. I mean, he was just forgiven a debt that was so gigantic that it was a joke. And then he goes out and he calls in the loan of a man who owed him a chunk of change, but a reasonable amount that could foreseeably be repaid. I mean, this guy had received the, been the ultimate recipient of grace. And he responded by being completely, completely ungracious. Yes, he's owed the money, but come on, have a heart. How can you receive so much extravagant, ridiculous grace and then be so stingy in extending a reasonable amount of grace to your brother? I mean, it's easy to feel angry at that first servant. Who would do such a thing? Well, Jesus has the answer. Verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Ouch. There Jesus goes, getting all up in our business again. 
He's done it again, hasn't it? This story isn't about someone else. It's about me. I'm the one who owes this massive debt. I'm the one who had no hope and no future. I'm the one who's up to my eyeballs in debt because that's what my sin looks like to a holy and righteous God. God who created me to be holy just like he is holy. And I'm not even close. I sin so many times. I fall short of his glory. I don't love my brothers and sisters when I'm called to do that. I let God down. And the Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. Yes, physical death here on earth, but way worse than that. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. I mean, there's simply nothing that I can do to pay off the debt that I owe. I had no hope. I had no future. But thank God for God's grace. Jesus came and he took my sin. Listen to what it says in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What a gift. What grace. What a God we have. Grace is the ultimate expression of God's grace, of his love. But there is something that doesn't seem quite right about this grace. I mean, are we as followers of Jesus just meant to be the doormat for the rest of the world to wipe their feet on? I mean, does everybody just get to walk all over us? And do we just have to lay here and take it? Some of you might know what it's like to be abused or to be taken advantage of. And you're asking the question, is Jesus condoning that? And the answer is no, of course he isn't. You see, forgiveness is an ongoing process of choosing to forgive but we also need to have healthy boundaries when we've been harmed so that we aren't harmed again in the same way you see there's a difference between forgiving infinitely and being continuously abused I continue to forgive the person who stepped on my toe, going back to that original analogy. But I can also move my foot. <laughs> or eventually I can just get out of range of that person. I might even call the authorities if it keeps up. Yes, I'll keep forgiving you. I'm called to do that. But I don't have to let you harm me forever. You see, forgiveness is the voluntary cancellation of the debt because the debt is uncollectible. It's about giving up my right to get even or to remain angry or to define ourselves by the transgression. It's focusing on God's purpose in life and not for focusing on the person who did me wrong. 
And that release allows me to bring God back into my life. Now, I can't fully understand who God is as long as I'm failing to extend grace to others because then I'm demonstrating that I don't understand God's incredible gift of grace to me. You see, forgiveness is an act of grace. And ultimately, we forgive because God forgave us. When we really understand the ugliness of our own sin in comparison to the beauty of God's holiness, then we can hardly help but forgive other people. So when I'm struggling to forgive someone, I look at them and I say, there but for the grace of God go I. So many times we look at people and we say, oh, I'll extend grace to them when they start stepping up when they start proving to me that they deserve it, because they sure don't deserve it now. But my friend, that's the opposite of what grace is all about. I mean, did Jesus wait until you cleaned up your life before he forgave you? Did he wait until you got your life squared away? No, we'd never be able to make any progress without the grace of God. We don't clean up our lives without God's grace any more than we clean up our bodies before we step into the shower to get clean. No, we show grace to others as a response to the incredible grace that God has shown us. This is what God's grace is all about. You see, God hasn't given us a list of rules and regulations to obey. No, he has lavished upon us his unmerited grace and made it abundantly clear the lengths to which he was willing to go in sending his one and only perfect son, Jesus, to die in our place and take the punishment which rightfully belongs to us. This is the length to which God was willing to go in order to have a relationship with you and a relationship with me, a relationship with everyone on the face of this earth. You see, grace recognizes that God wants a relationship with every single person on earth, not just you and me and the ones who look like us and act like us and think like you and me. Grace is understanding that only God knows what thoughts and what paths belong to each of us, and that he alone is the judge of the human heart. God loves messy people. God's perfect grace combined with our messy lives is what messy grace is all about. And my friends, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of messiness in our world today. You know, it's possible to disagree with someone else's choices and still love them, still value them. Where did we ever come up with this crazy idea that disagreeing with someone else's choice means that we have the right to be unloving to them? My friends, biblical beliefs should never be the basis for devaluing another human being. And so ask yourself, is there any place in your life where God is calling you to change your posture? Where God is calling you to show more compassion, more grace, 
more understanding to others? Is there any place where you need to let go and let God's grace go to work on your heart? Where do you need to learn to lean in and rely on God's grace more? My friends, there are going to be disagreements in this world until the end of time. But what if you could be known more by what you're for instead of for what you're against? What if we could be a people who are known more for what we're for than for what we're against? I mean, if we are going to be criticized for anything, may it be for the same things Jesus was criticized for, for loving people who are messy, for loving people who are controversial, and for loving God ridiculously and relentlessly. Will you pray with me? Holy God, you are holy and we are not. Your holiness is so far above where we are in this life, and so we thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your grace made known in Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and rose again that we might be forgiven for our sins, for our trespasses, that we might be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that our sins would be forgiven and that we would be clothed in his righteousness. God, we have been forgiven a ridiculous debt, an insurmountable debt, a debt that we could never pay in a billion lifetimes. And so as a response, would you help us fall so wildly in love with you and so wildly in love with your ways that we would offer that same insurmountable grace to others, a grace which surpasses all our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.